Hi there, folks. My name is Emily. And I'm Elk. And this is Oh My Word, a podcast where we discuss movies, musicals, books, TV shows, etc., and share some of the content so that you can make more informed decisions before you consume. Yeah. And then we look at all that content of the violence, language, and romance, and we observe it with our microscopes and with our very highly technical x-ray stuff, and then we grade it on our pearl clutching scale of zero to four, zero being very good, four being very not good. That's how you know, because you say, oh, how can I make a more informed decision? Well, we give you a number, and then you look at that number, you see what it correlates to, and you're like, oh, now I know. You're welcome. I just have to do a brief um, recap for people, because a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about coming up with our own colors and doing our own color palette, right? And then I heard that this year, Pan I guess Pantone every year comes out with a color of the year. Now, I don't even know who Pantone is and why they're the ones who get to decide what the color of the year is, but apparently that's their job. And this year, their color was a made-up color. It's called Very Perry, which is like sort of a periwinkle, but like it's a new thing. So all I want to say is Elk kind of gave me a hard time for my mashups and my colors that I was coming up with, but apparently Pantone can do it. And if Pantone can do it, I feel like I should be able to do it. Yeah, Emily always does this, like tries to frame herself as a visionary and as, you know, this great progressive mind just because someone else did something that's also, how come they get to do it? That's also that they made up this thing that they get to do. So like she used it to validate herself. Unlike someone else in this conversation who um, emulates other great people who made up words, for example. And so when she makes up words, there is real precedent for that. And that is how we have words that we never had before in the English language. Whatever, it makes more sense from this perspective is all I'm trying to say. So you can make up words, but I can't make up colors? Okay, look, I wasn't going to be the one to say that. But now that you've said it, I, will, I know you like it when I say you're correct, so you're correct. <laughs> I'm torn because I like being correct, but I also don't like that you get to do something that I don't get to do. Well, I'll rack it up as a win for myself and you get, I don't know what you get. You know, speaking of being creative and emulating people, uh, in the movie we're, movie musical we're going to talk about, the main character does emulate other greats in his field, one in particular who is quite prominent throughout the film. So we are today talking about Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a recent Netflix musical adaptation of an early 90s okay so this is where i'm a little bit lost because because isn't jonathan larson wrote tick tick boom right correct right it can't it was before rent i think tick tick boom was before rent it was just not as well known as rent because it was a one-man show originally but then i was reading that it was later expanded into a three-person show but that was must have been after jonathan larson died and now this Movie musical, well, it's a movie, so it's been expanded. There's a much bigger main cast, and then there's a bunch of extras. But that's where it originated from. So the premise is that on the cusp of his 30th birthday, a promising young theater composer navigates life, friendship, and the pressures of life as an artist in New York City. And the original music and lyrics are by Jonathan Larson. Um, This screenplay was written by Stephen Levinson. 
And the Netflix adaptation stars Andrew Garfield and was directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's everywhere in the musical world. And even though, I mean, I liked Hamilton. I haven't seen In the Heights yet, though I like some of the music from it. Like, I like some of the music from Moana. Anyway, what I really like about Lin-Manuel Miranda is not necessarily his style, but is the fact that he seems really dedicated to bringing musical theater to a new audience like to a new generation and maybe making it a little bit more accessible, you know, like, okay, Hamilton was a lot of rap music and hip hop or whatever. And it's maybe not traditional ham or Broadway, but it at least gets people involved in musical theater who maybe otherwise wouldn't. Once you watch Hamilton, then you're like, oh, let me see what this other musical theater stuff is about, you know? So I, I feel like Lin-Manuel Miranda and I would get along about, about that, you know, trying to bring musicals to, to the new generation. Which is just your excuse to try to meet him, like, basically. Well, after Sutton Foster, who, by the way, we still haven't heard from, <laughs> um, I think he'd be a pretty interesting guy to meet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, most people He's who, listening, who right? do something, all right? <laughs> and almost everybody does something, almost, right? Well, That's true. Yeah. And also, this story, so this story is, um, it's the story within a story within a story sort of thing. Because it's mm-hmm. Jonathan Lawrence is doing a performance about a performance about him trying to write a performance. Kind of, it's like there's a lot of it's there's a lot of stories at play, but it's all the same story. It's it's semi biographical. Yeah. Um, well, it's, I think there's a lot of it biographical because he moved to New York. He was living in this like rundown apartment with his friends. I mean, you know, the AIDS crisis was going on, which you see in rent is you know it's all it's it's in rent a lot. So you have that here also, such with his best friend and. And he's talking about, you know, parents who bury children and um, and friends who die and stuff like that. So all that is, is very biographical. And also him trying to make it is very biographical. Because right. he was trying to make it in New York. He was trying to make it. But the show is him performing a show about trying to write a show. So you have like a lot of... Right. right it's, a, it's, a, it's a nesting doll almost. It's a nesting doll of people telling stories about writing shows. <laughs> it's, yes. It's kind of what it is. Um, so I think it's... There's something about like when writers um, write about themselves or like, you know, you also have like a lot of like stories about intrepid journalism, you know, stories like that, that are always, they always like resonate almost with like the, the critics and mm. uh, like writers love the, the shows about writers and the, and the movies right. about writers and nobody else really gets or whatever. So I think there is an element of that here where it's um, this kind of show, which about the struggling artist, he's trying, struggling to be creative, right? He's sacrificing all else to be creative you see that actually a little bit of whiplash. Um, the Miles, was it Miles Teller? Everyone, everyone gives the other um, J.D. Simmons. Uh, I might be totally butchering his names, but the the mentor guy, the teacher guy, who's yelling at him and throwing the drums and stuff, is the one who gets all the credit because of the mm. performance he did. Which is, I mean, it is you know. But yeah, Miles Teller is also he like preemptively breaks up with his girlfriend because he's like, you're just gonna resent me because I'm gonna be giving all so much time to this. So we may as well just break up now. Right. So he also, he, it's that mindset of like giving up everything because for the creative gene, you know, because I mm-hmm. must tell the story. So you have a lot of here with Jonathan Larson um, and this whole story. But the thing that was surprising about it, I would say surprising about it is because Andrew Garfield, Garfield is in it. And even though a lot of actors are theater trained, a lot of actors, this, that, whatever, you still never really know what you're going to get with it. Yeah. So I think a lot of people were really, really surprised because he kind of made this film. I don't want to, it's, a, it's not a great word, but, like, watchable, because otherwise it would just be like, oh, it's another musical adaptation, so you're either into it or not. But he actually turned in, like, an incredible performance. Oh, yeah. Like, it was not expected. Even some of it, I didn't love a lot of the direction and some of the cinematography. I didn't love it or whatever, but 
Andrew Garfield, like, really, really nailed the role. Like, yeah. as far as just so much feeling and emotion, whatever, and his singing was, it wasn't cringe, it wasn't cringy. I mean, I'm not going to start going into, like, oh, what is the real quality of this musical before, you know? But it was right. not cringy. He, you know, he sounded good. He sounded, he seemed like he was, like, really into what he was doing. So. Yeah. I heard he took, I mean, I saw this online, that he took voice lessons for a year for this movie. Oh. That, like, Lin-Manuel Miranda cast him and liked him from an actor standpoint, but he didn't sing, so then he had to take. So he doesn't have a singing back. Like, some actors we find out, you know, after a while, like we were talking about recently with, like, Hugh Jackman or some other people. It's like, oh, they actually started in musical theater. But he didn't start in musical theater, but he has done theater perform theater before so that was why he got the role and I agree he was very watchable and even though like there are times I thought Jonathan Larson as a character was interesting because he wasn't a totally likable character you know sometimes he was flawed but he was trying so I don't know sometimes you get a character a lot of times on tv especially these days you get like really awful people as main characters you're like why do I even want to watch you just a bad person but he was just like a I don't know he yeah, you're right. He just made it watchable. Yeah. Well, because you see, he gets very wrapped up in himself, right? And his friends yes. are struggling with different things or whatever, and he's not paying attention to them. He's pushing them off. But it's, you just, I don't know, it's almost like you could get why, you might not agree that he's like that, but you could get why he's like that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But also, even taking lessons for a year, you don't know. Like, they try to teach Marlon Brando how to sing for Guys and Dolls, that film adaptation. You have Frank, Frank Sinatra's mm. in it, Marlon Brando's in it, and it's not... Like, it didn't, it didn't work, you know. Marlon Brando is not, he's not a singer. He's, he's a great actor. He's not a singer, so. That's true. Um, we haven't actually talked about our ratings yet, so let's do those. Uh, so violence is a zero. Language is a four. And romance is a three. So violence is a zero, meaning there were no instances of violence. I mean, even Rent has some instances of violence in it, but this doesn't have any. Language is a four. So they do get all the way to the F word in this. But I will say that I was surprised because the... It was not a constant slurry of curse words. They did use a variety of words, but it wasn't, it wasn't all over the place. You know, it was, in a way, it was almost, it wasn't clean because they did use the words, but it didn't, it didn't feel like one of those movies where they're cursing every two seconds and you're like, what, what is going on here? You know, it was a pretty reasonable use of language for something that's an adult film and artists in New York, you know, what, what you might actually expect. Um, and then romance is a three, which again, I will say was pretty surprising for me. For those of us who have any familiarity with rent, you know that there's going to be stuff about HIV and AIDS. So you might expect that there's going to be some sex scenes, but there weren't any sex scenes. There was some kissing and some making out and a few like crude references that may or may not have actually added to the movie. Um, so it's still kind of high in terms of romance, but there wasn't even really any nudity. Right. I mean, it's very impressive given what you might expect knowing Rent and knowing Netflix and knowing musicals these days that it's because of the content and the, the um, not the content, but the, the subject matter, you know, it's not a family musical like Music Manual has come back to or Sound of Music or something like that. But in terms of like nuts and bolts, is it appropriate? They actually kept it relatively clean. Yeah. It could have been almost entirely clean almost. Like... Yes. As far as that, whatever was not specifically clean could have been written out without it affecting. Because that's how that's how infrequent and not pervasive and almost like side it was. Yes. Like it almost could have been like an entirely clean, which just saying, we see now that this could happen. It would have been so simple. I know. That's the other thing that um, 
interested me or surprised me was just not only how relatively clean it was for what I anticipated, but also it was surprisingly not super political. I mean, they do talk about HIV and AIDS. And, you know, they show this one clip from C-SPAN with some Republican governor or senator at the time talking about AIDS. But they didn't make anything up. Like, there was this really awful thing that Mrs. Maisel did a couple years ago, which is why I don't watch the show anymore, because they totally slandered a politician who was dead. So like a politician who can't speak back for themselves anymore, and made up lies about them just, you know, like to, for the show's purpose. And it was annoying, you know, it wasn't purpose. There was no, there was no point to it. But here in a movie, which you know, is going to be about HIV, or it's going to be part of it, because you know, Rent, you know, Jonathan Larson. Yeah, it's a part of his life. He's living in New York in the 90s. He's in Broadway. Probably most of his friends are gay. It's actually surprising that he's not gay, <laughs> right? Given this world that he lives in. And so HIV and AIDS is like, it's the backdrop. It's something that's in his life. So of course, they're going to talk about it, but they didn't make a big deal about like they didn't add to it. They just put it in at least I felt in a way that this probably was in his life. And we know it was in his life because he wrote Rent and it was such a big theme in Rent. So it might not have been as much of a theme for other people at the time, but we know it was for him. And I thought other than that, there was only one other thing he said that was political that didn't wasn't necessary. But other than that, it was really about him and what it takes to be an artist and all the work that goes in. And yes, you might be writing something for six years and people might like it, but then you, know, you got to go write the next thing. You, know, you got to constantly be writing and hustling and the toll that it takes on you personally and on your personal relationships. I think one of the reasons I liked it so much is maybe because my expectations were somewhat, if not low, then at least like hesitant around the content and the cleanliness, and it exceeded all of my expectations. Yep. <laughs> See, that's that's the new standard. Set your bar, set the bar low. So yeah, yeah. Well, it's also um, for the the AIDS also ends like an urgency that he wants so much to to succeed and get something done because just everyone around him is dying young, so. He wants to make sure he achieves something. He ironically, well, not ironically, but he did die young from, I think it was an aneurysm, right? It was, it was 35 or something when he died. So after all that, it wasn't even AIDS. It was, it was something else, yeah. another medical condition that today, you know, if they would have known what it was, it might not have happened. I mean, who knows? But there was a thing, I don't know if I, we really want to talk about this. So maybe I'll just mention it and then we'll decide to, but there was one line when they're watching a senator talk about, you know, we have to ban gay relationships or gay marriages or something because of this AIDS epidemic and people, you know, of course, you know, oh, he doesn't want us to have love, that or whatever. But the only thing that, the one thing that I thought then was not even about the marriage aspect of it, whatever, but we see today that what people will do for safety or to feel or to not get sick is like, they'll do almost Mm. anything, right? They'll stay at home for a year, all that kind of stuff. So maybe, you know, the answers might be wrong, but you're, you're upset that he's like, oh, I can't show love. But this love that you're showing until they figure out what AIDS are. Okay, it's right. You can say it now versus you know, then, which obviously it's not as much. It's not what it was then. But it's like it's it's not even a matter of, of whether or not you think it's a moral issue or not. Like people were actually getting sick because of this transmission. Like right. it was actually occurring. It was being occurring through these relationships was actually transmitting AIDS. Like. You know, unless, you know, the perspective of it was different then, but like you can kick and scream as much as you want, but you can't right. undo that. Right. So that's why, okay. They start with, you know, you have to be safe and what, you know, safe, whatever, and all that kind of stuff. You got to take precaution that or whatever. But like, there's never that element of like, wait a second, like maybe we should all have abstinence for three months until we figure this out. Or maybe yeah. they ask us to see if like, 
It's just funny, like, it never goes there. It's always just like, oh, everybody's a demon because they don't want us to love. And it's like, but you guys are actually transmitting the disease to each other. Like, it's not, it's not a made-up science. There's a real science about how this gets yeah. transmitted. So, I don't know. But here's something awesome. <laughs> well, that's that's one point. But I realized something with, with Jonathan Larson's um, lyrics. Okay, there's, not, well, there's only so much we've got to go on because, you know, unfortunately he didn't get to... Uh, he didn't get to, right. to write, you know, he didn't get to write as much as he could have because he wasn't, he, cause he's gone. So, but, um, especially for this musical, Jonathan Larson has an incredible ear for music and an mm. incredible ear for harmonies, right? Some of the harmonies, he knows how to like really layer songs. And I mean, you hear it a lot of, a lot of songs for Brent where he brings in like different voices are coming yeah. in and out and whatever. And you're like, what is even going on here? What is this musical symphony? I'm hearing that's really a vocal symphony. He has that kind of stuff. But especially for this musical, there are certain songs where the lyrics just seem like he wrote down lines and then just put it to music. Mm. Like, some of the lyrics are just, they're not, like, there's no harmony to the lyrics. Like, they're not, they're not melodious lyrics. It was, like, funny, like, you have those, like, like 3090 or Johnny Kent's, they have a lot of ones where it's just, like, am I supposed to be able to, mm. to actually sing this? Like, these words don't flow. But you don't hear it so much because the music carries everything so yes. well. You know, so if you're not really paying attention, you're like, wait a second, what are these lyrics doing in the song? Like, they don't, this, it doesn't, like, if you'd only look at the writing of the song, you'd be like, what, this is a song? I thought it was, like, slam poetry or something, so. Well, he was doing, like, rock musicals before, I mean, uh, there were some others before that, right? Like, Hair and things like that, but he, he was a new genre in a way. You're right, it's interesting what would have happened had he lived longer because you can you can listen to his music and you can hear some of the influences like you can hear Sondheim in some of his lyrics you know and I'm sure he's influenced by other he's clearly influenced by other Broadway writers too but you're right we don't know what would have happened had more had he had more time they actually at the end with the recording I believe that's Sondheim who does I think I saw that Sondheim actually did the recording that's at the end where he gets a message on his answer oh really Sondheim. I think it's him which is basically one of the last yeah. things Sondheim did I guess before he passed away, right? He just recently passed away. So, but I believe it's Sondheim. Sondheim's not in the actual film. You do have, there are cameos from a lot of different Broadway legends. Yeah, but you also have to know, like, if you don't know, you oh, really no, would for not sure. know. Like, I knew some, yeah. but I still had to look up half. But there's, there are people peppered throughout in different scenes. And then there's this one scene, which I won't really ruin. And I won't say all the people, but there's this one musical number. And it's just like, like, at first you see one person from a, musical theater from Broadway like oh how cool that Lin-Manuel Miranda got you know this guy to be in it and then you see someone else and suddenly this is whole musical number and it was like that's that's Lin-Manuel Miranda to me a little bit like he loves musical theater and he wants to share musical theater with the world so he just got all his musical theater friends and they were all like yes I love musical theater too and even like the obsessions with Sondheim and I don't know how much that was Jonathan Larson and how much was Lin-Manuel Miranda and how much is a little bit of both but like it's a little bit of a musical for musical lovers but not from a musical perspective just sort of like from a theme perspective yeah no I believe Sondheim was a big influence for okay for Jonathan Larson that he was yeah that's part of also why he did that for him I think that makes sense it's also the film very much had a thing of like we want to do this tribute Mm. for Jonathan Larson like it very much had that tribute of it almost just felt like you know, we're all in this for him, kind of, versus like, oh, we're mm. going to make this movie that, you know, kind of have that attitude of, like, let's dedicate this to this great mind who never, you know, who who got right. cut off short sort of thing. So it's also, I don't know, just the approach of it is different, you know, it's just, because you're all there for something bigger than just you. And not just like, oh, we're making a movie, but like, you're not there to be the star of the performance, you're there to, to show your love for this person who created something that you might love also. 
So anyway, that was Tick, Tick, Boom. And I am going to write a letter to Pantone to see if they'll include my green fluis. And uh, possibly for next year, I guess I've already decided for this year that it's very peri, whatever. But I think green fluis is really the color that we need in 2022 uh, to calm us all down and bring some harmony. Right. She's saying that she's only going to write a letter, but she really has a stack. She's stacking the letter. She has about 14 Yeah, a letter a day. I don't see why that's not clear to people. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers, people. Oh My Word podcast is brought to you by the Pearl Clutching Basement Dwellers at Oh My Word. Follow us on Instagram for updates at Oh My Word podcast, or like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For full episode notes and details, visit eltenabam.com. Music is by Tim Burke. See you next time.